Hey everybody, it's Dan. Welcome or welcome back to the Bridge Church Podcast. Please, at the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and head over to bridgechurchutah.com and have access to all of the church information and it's the easiest way to share content with a friend and keep up with everything going on around here at Bridge Church. Most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right, so with all that out of the way, we're going to go ahead and jump into our lesson tonight. So for those of you who haven't been here before or don't know what we're talking about, uh, we are talking about the end times still tonight. <laughs> to my pain and chagrin, we are still <laughs> continuing this line of ta- this uh, lesson plan, right? So to catch up those who missed last week or maybe haven't had a chance to listen, last week we really just discussed a lot of the introductory material of Revelation, which is our Christian description of the apocalypse of the end times, okay? So we talked about who wrote Revelation, when it was written, and what exactly is contained within it. We talked about some of the approaches to interpreting it very briefly, and then unfortunately we ran out of time and had to cut it. So... In all of that, I was looking at it, I was listening to it last time, since, you know, we only do this once a month, and I had thought, hmm, there is one humongous question that I forgot to bring up. So unfortunately, I have to correct myself last week and bring it up this particular time, and that would be, why study Revelation? Why does it matter to actually look at what the Bible has to say about the end times? It's a pretty deep question, and I'm sure all of you have at least some kind of answer of, oh, uh, it'll help us have a better witness for people who are struggling with this, or, oh, we'll know to, like, you know, move to another country when X event happens or something like that, you know what I mean? And those are all good answers, but I think we got to look at the Bible itself to see what exactly it has to say about this whole situation, right? So go ahead and turn with your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 real quick, all right? And it goes like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about that last time, how this is not the revelation of St. John. This is the revelation of Jesus. And Jesus is basically describing it to John, and John is writing it down, okay? Which God gave him, again, capital H, that means Jesus, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, all right? So that's all of verse 1. Again, like I had just said, John is not like this divine person who's like, oh, I have gotten it. I know how the world is going to end. John isn't the one who is learning about how the end times is going to happen. Jesus has gotten it and is giving it, okay? All right, moving on to verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now again, no capital H, John saw this, all right? And then verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So what does Revelation have to say? It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Okay, so number one. Revelation is saying, this is a prophecy, this is going to happen, okay? Now, in a lot of what's called apocalyptic literature, it had a big fancy theology name, I'm not going to bore you guys with this particular session, 
But in a lot of apocalyptic literature, they'll say, oh, the end may be like this, or the end may proceed like this. Revelation doesn't have time for that. It says, this is prophecy. This is going to happen. All right? And that's one big thing about Revelation that I think a lot of commentaries really bring up. And a lot of people talk about the end times is that it has an imminent sense of urgency. All right? And I think that's a lot of the reason why so many people are drawn to learn about the end times is because they feel like, uh, 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 you know, they get nervous about it. They want to know what's coming up. They view the end times as like a test kind of, you know what I mean? And they want to know what's going to be on the test so they can study for it. You know what I mean? That's one particular understanding. All right? But what we can glean from this are three things. Now, God is giving us revelation. He's describing the end times for us, what's going to happen in what order and all that, for three reasons, okay? Number one, so we can know what's coming. All right? And then number two, so we could follow what is written in it. it. Verse three says, blessed is he who hears this word and follows what is written in it, right? And then finally, so we could be stronger for what is coming. We talked about it a little bit last time of the seven churches that are in Asia, right? And John wrote to these churches, and then these churches formed the backbone of the Christian world at that point so they could spread the word, all right? So basically, John is saying, hey, guys, things are going to get pretty bad. So I want you guys to be ready for it when it comes, all right? Okay? Everybody all right? Every Nobody's got hurt? Everybody's following? Okay, good. All right, so... How many of you would believe me if I said that this is not the only account we have of Jesus describing the end times? <laughs> you can hear Joel out there. <laughs> well, I'll just tell you the answer right now. It isn't. And for that, we got to turn to the expert. That picture's my wallpaper. <laughs> But Jesus himself describes the end times one other time. He makes off references to it a couple other times, but this is the one time where he sits down and actually talks about it at length, all right? And it exists in all three of the synoptic gospels. It's in John 2, but I'm not going to pay attention to that right now. We're talking about just the synoptics today, okay? And you can find it in the synoptics in Mark chapter 13, in Matthews chapter 24 and 25, and in Luke 21. Now, we're not going to look at the Matthew one. We're not going to look at the Luke one because we'll be here till G Jesus literally returns. <laughs> so we're going to look at Mark, and I want to read you guys the whole chapter because it'll be a very compressed version of what Jesus is talking about for all of Revelation, okay? So basically, just go to Mark 13 and stay there because we're going to be there a while, Okay. So basically, we're going to read it through, and I'll stop occasionally to give you guys some, like, fancy hoo-ha or whatever, and you guys will learn, okay? But one big question, one humongous thing I got to ask you guys before we get into this is, who is Jesus talking to? Pay attention to who he's discussing and who he's addressing, because he can give hints and possibly a little understanding of what exactly he's talking about. Okay? All right, so Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Hopefully we'll have this on the screen. All right, so it goes like this. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. <laughs> you know, you always got that one guy when you're just like, mm, you know, you're not in the best of moods. And one guy's just like, man, aren't you happy that the sun is out today? 
is just like, I, I, I do not want to talk to you. Please just. And apparently Jesus was having one of those days because he had verse 2. And Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another. That shall, be not, that shall not be thrown down. Hey, Jesus, this temple looks cool, isn't it? It's going to be gone in a couple of years. Excuse me? <laughs> All right, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. Okay, so <laughs> Jesus literally left these guys with that, that, oh, this whole temple will be thrown down. <laughs> this whole temple will be thrown down in a couple of years. It just left him with it for the entire walk. <laughs> I got to say, you know, the disciples get a lot of crap for, me, for some of the stuff they did, but... I imagine it wasn't exactly easy being like right-hand man to Jesus. You know what I mean? <laughs> but anyway, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. Now, this is important because we can use this and Revelation together to get a better picture of the end times. Okay? In the word of two or three witnesses, let everything be confirmed. We got John and Revelation. We have John here as well. And then we have Peter, James, and Andrew who also verified it. All right? And for those of you who don't know, the Gospel of Mark is believed to have been patched together from different sermon notes of different people. Peter being a primary contributor, but other guys as well. So it's believed that Mark assembled this whole like chapter from different scraps from the different disciples, okay? All right, then verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that all these things will be fulfilled? This is the question. This is the big question that Christianity has been asking since Jesus was here. When will these things be, and what will the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Hey, Jesus, how long have we got? When's it going to happen? When will these things be fulfilled? Jesus, give us the answer to the test, please. Now, how many of you know that whenever you ask Jesus a question in the Bible, he never gives you a straight answer? Mm-hmm. Verse 5, and Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. Hey, Jesus, when's it going to be? You know, you shouldn't listen to everybody. And they're just like, oh, jeez. Here we go. <laughs> and again, this chapter goes on for 37 verses. We're in verse 5. So Jesus is going to talk for a while. All right. Jesus answered began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying that I am he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Now, once again, I want to bring the question up to you guys. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to the disciples? Or is he talking to us? Keep that question in your mind as we keep going, all right? Let's see, where are we on? Verse 8. For nation will rise against nation the kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. So this is where we get the idea that there is a numbered period, okay? Now, a lot of people in, well, some interpretations of Revelation can be derived to say that there is a period of especially bad things called tribulation, so to speak. Now, a lot of interpreters have used scriptures in Daniel along with Revelation to say that it'll be seven years, okay? Now, again, I've said this before, but I want to say this one more time. Our goal here is not to tell you what to believe. Our goal here is to give you multiple choice answers to one question and let you pick 
with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what is the right answer? All right? So I'm not here to tell you, oh, it's going to be more than seven years. It's going to be less than seven years. You're going to be gone for most of it. You're going to be gone for half of it. I'm not here to tell you that. I'm here to present you the facts and let you decide. All right? All right. These are the beginnings of sorrows, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now, hang on a second. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know of any Christians that have been beat up in synagogues in the last 500 years. So, who is Jesus talking to? Where, where did that come from? Because it sounds to me like Jesus was addressing everybody, and then he just started addressing the disciples. Let's look at the next verse. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So anyone who says that Jesus was super cryptic about the Holy Spirit before it came, no, that's, that's not true. Jesus very deliberately was saying, there's a Holy Spirit, this is what he's going to do for you, and he'll come after I go. All right? Everybody still following? Everybody got it? All right. Moving on to verse 12. Now, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. All right. So basically, what Jesus is addressing in this specific verse is familial bonds will fail at this particular period in history. So you can obviously tell that things are pretty bad if a dad is like, nah, that's not my kid. Or if a brother's like, no, he's not my brother. All right. But again, is Jesus talking to the disciples and how their parents and their siblings will say, no, he's not one of us, like what Peter does with Jesus? Or is he addressing the end of all things when all Christians are disavowed for serving Jesus? Which is he referring to? Important question, isn't it? And you will be hated for all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Okay, important side note. Every commentary I researched said this exact thing. Do not believe this is a works mentality message. Jesus is not saying, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. He is saying those who endure to the end have been saved. So Jesus isn't saying, it's all on you. If you don't, if you don't stick with me, you're cast in outer darkness. You're all this blah, 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 blah. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, he's describing that the ones who love me will endure to the end. He's not saying that because you want to endure to the end, I love you. Okay? Really important, really important distinguishing factor. And you know, that's another thing about the end times that a lot of people like to bring up, is they put the impetus on man. That it is man and his foolishness that brings on the end times. That it is God finally just having it, being done, just being over it, right? Like a very angry wife when you come home late for the 10th time this week. But that's not the picture of God that's represented through all of the Bible. My pastor says it all the time. You got to use the whole book to explain one little sentence. Not let the one sentence define the whole book. Amen? All right. 
Verse 14, so when you see the abomination of desolation, ooh, we got the big words out, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, hold on this verse for a second. If this is the end times, why are those in Judea fleeing to the mountains? kind of weird. Why would they do that? And moreover, why are only them fleeing if it's something that affects the whole world? But again, abomination of desolation is a very, very intense statement. So just saying that it's one city that existed at some time in history is kind of weird and that it doesn't apply to like all of evil all at one time. You know what I mean? But another thing I want to let you guys know about is that let the reader understand part. Because every commentary that I've looked at says that was inserted by Mark. That Mark was like, okay, this is going to confuse people, but I want you guys to understand. Let the reader understand. Okay? Jesus didn't say let the reader understand. Mark is saying the reader will understand. Okay? It's funny we're talking about this because I actually had to text my mom because the women have been studying the Gospel of Mark for a year and some change or something. And I had to ask her, I was like, hey, you're not in Mark 13, are you? Because I don't want to just be repeating myself. And she was like, no, we're still in 12. And I was like, okay, (laughs) that's great. (laughs) All right. But, and it's also important, spoken by Daniel the prophet. Whenever this end time stuff comes up, Daniel is brought up a lot, along with Ezekiel, along with Zechariah, along with a lot of different Old Testament type books, okay? Daniel especially, though. Like, the vision towards the end of Daniel, I think it's the last four chapters, was the template that John and a lot of these other writers pulled from, all right? It set the benchmark for what apocalyptic writing was in the Bible, all right? Okay? Everybody following? All right, verse 15, let him who is on the housetop not go down into his house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Verse 16, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Verse 17, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And verse 18, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. So Jesus is saying, hey, run, run, run. Now, again, a lot of people that I have read about this, especially like early in my Christian life, had said that this is referring to, I'm going to say it, I'm going to drop the R word, everybody get ready. This is referring to the rapture. That when people are taken, they won't have time to grab stuff because they're just, and then that babies will be like taken out of the womb, all that other crazy stuff. Right? I've heard this before. I don't think it's like surprising for anyone else in this room, but... For those listening on the podcast and on the stream, it may be. So this is an ideal that is held in what is called the futurist interpretation of Revelation, okay? So that is one possible interpretation. We'll talk about that a little bit more, a little bit later tonight. But the important thing is that is one interpretation. But another is that Jesus is addressing this to the disciples. Like I had said, one possible way of who Jesus is talking to is to the disciples, and he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, for those of you that missed our discussion on that last week, Jesus is talking to the disciples and is saying, you Judeans are going to need to flee into the mountains because when Rome shows up, it's going to be bad. And just so everybody here knows, it was very bad. 
legitimately, there is not a single stone of that original temple that is still standing to this day. The Wailing Wall was the support that Herod had to build so that it wouldn't fall off the mountain. All right? So that is, again, a possible interpretation that Jesus is warning his disciples to tell the Jews that when this all goes down, run away. And that the abomination of desolation is Rome on its way to come whack them. All right? But again, one interpretation. One of many. I'm here to present the facts. You guys will decide what you think is right. All right? All right. Moving on. For in those days there will be tribulation. There's that word again. Another one of the big buzzwords in the end times theology. Such as has not been seen since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Verse 20. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, that sounds kind of weird, but again, this is another verse that helps people to say, okay, so Daniel's 70 weeks, the seven-year period, is legit. It's not going to go on for hundreds and hundreds of years. God is shortening it to seven. Again, this is one interpretation. Another, if you're going with the AD 70 theory, is that this lasted for a couple of days, and that was it. But the larger point here is something that when I was studying for this, I got, and that is that God is the El Shaddai. And for those of you who don't know, that means God is almighty. Meaning that the end times does not happen and God is just a participant in it or is just on the sidelines for all of it. He is active and moving in that end times. And that it happens when he wants it to and it ends when he wants it to. All right? Because I think a lot of people, when they think of the end times, they think, I got to be right because God's not going to help me. That God's wrath has overflown and now we're just, we're done. We're in the pooper now. There's no way to get out. And that's certainly one way to look at it. You know, you want to look at Revelation that way? That's great. I pity your blood pressure, but I get it. Because again, the New Testament says that there is a God of love who is doing literally everything he can to get as many people out before the hammer comes down. Again, why am I telling you this so you can be prepared? Amen? All right. Verse 21, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now take in mind, this is not Paul or Peter or James or John saying this. This is Jesus saying that the elect can be fooled. And I think a lot of people like to say, oh, if they're in their secret place or if they're reading the Bible or if they're blah, 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 they won't be deceived. I don't know. Because I think that the part that's going to get you deceived is not the God part. It's going to be how much of stuff you hold on to. Your presuppositions, your personality, your other stuff that you bring into your relationship with God. Because I don't know about all of you, but... As I proceed in my Christian life, I constantly have this struggle that Paul describes brilliantly as I have to put off the old man and put on the new man. That is, I know the Jesus side. I get it. I know what the right thing to do is, but I do not do it. Amen? So 
So I think it is very easy in this end time period for Christians to be deceived and to be led astray by a variety of people. Some interpretations say this is state figures. This is politicians. Some will say this is teachers of, like, the faith that have been led astray or other things like that. The point of the matter is read this, pay attention to God, and don't let yourself decide your faith. Let your faith decide everything else. Anyway, sorry, I'm preaching a bit more than I wanted to here. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus just like, all right, there you go. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. For they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and glory. All right? So basically this is saying nothing in the world will be the same as it has been. Literally everything from the sun that gives us the light of the morning that decides what we do with our day to the moon that ends the day will be the same. Literally everything will take a whole cosmic shift after Jesus returns for the second time. And whether you believe that's literal, like God's murdering everybody and starting over, or if you believe that's symbolic or whatever, we'll get to that a little bit later, things are going to fundamentally change. And some people, that's scary. Everything I've ever known is gone. Don't be afraid. Why? I have told you all these things beforehand. And then this part, verse 27. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now, our pastor made a claim this week where he had said we are all taken up into the air and taken away and then seven years of tribulation happened. And then he followed that up by saying, and Chase will fix all that on Wednesday. <laughs> Here we are on Wednesday fixing it. <laughs> so, this is one particular part, all right? This is one part of the rapture. This is one scripture that's used to justify it, that we will be taken up, all right? From the four winds, the angels will gather us and we'll be taken up, okay? But the two words I want to draw you guys to are the and then. The cosmic change has already happened, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds. Does that mean that Christians are here for the whole tribulation, seven years of suffering, you know, the bulls, the trumpets, all that stuff? I don't know. This is on you guys to decide. All right, verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender, it puts forth leaves. You know the summer is near. And you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So the fig tree is a very important symbolic image that Jesus is using because the fig tree, unlike a lot of other plants of Palestine, is not green year-round. I just learned this today, actually, that the fig tree actually has seasons where it does not have fruit, and it does. And this is, you know, corroborated by Jesus' other story, where he walks up to the fig tree, see it isn't yielding fruit in its season, and says, let no fruit ever come from you again, blah, 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 blah. That's a whole other story. I'm not going to get into it. But basically, Jesus is saying there will be signs. 
that Christians can see, can discern, can know. Okay? That's the takeaway from that. But this is the important one. This is Jesus finally, after 31 verses, answering the question the disciples asked him. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. They had said, Lord, when will it be? He says, no one knows. Which is literally the most unhelpful response in the history of the Bible. But you are talking to God, so. All right, then verse 33, take heed, watch and pray. Let me see. I think I lost my place. Hang on. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the, crow at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. What is Jesus saying? No one knows when it's going to be, but watch. Watch. All right? The point that Jesus is saying here is the hour will come like a thief in the night. You cannot specifically guess it. And that bungled my head a little bit in my research for this. I searched far and wide and one commentary presented it very interestingly where they had said, what would give the disciples more faith? Giving them a specific roadmap or telling them to watch? And plus, which is more like a responsible father who has a child who is of age and able to do their own thing? Am I going to baby you and watch you and give you every specific time frame of this thing? Or am I going to say, hey, we got to do this thing. Just watch and you'll know when it's coming. To me, that shows that God trusts the church to watch and to know when these things are going to happen and to be ready for when it comes. And Jesus gives this example here of setting someone to watch the door for when the master returns. And that is a goal of the church to watch the door and be ready for when Jesus returns. But remember what Jesus said. There are going to be people who are saying, oh, I know when it's happening. I understand all these mysteries and all these things. If anyone ever tells you that they 100% understand Revelation, run away. Because it's not designed to give you an answer. It's designed to give you a vague outline and you find the rest. All right, we got a couple minutes left, so I'm going to dash through and explain this funny rapture thing for a second, all right? Tanisha, you got it? That's a cool-looking image, I think. But anyway, to address our pastor specifically mentioning first this idea of being caught up in the air. The scripture he's referencing is in 1 Thessalonians. You can finally move off of Mark, even though it's taken us literally all night to do it. And it's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and it goes like this. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Okay? Let me just say right now, like I asked you guys last time, what is the goal that Paul is saying here? 
But I do not want you, brethren, to be ignorant of those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. What is Paul saying here? He is saying, hey, don't worry about those guys who are dead. I know what's going to happen to them. He is not making a general claim of theology like, hey, this is the truth that is going to happen. He is saying, hey, don't feel bad. Okay? Paul's goal is to comfort right now. He's not stating a doctrine, truth, or theology. All right? Moving on to verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, capital H, those who sleep in Jesus. Basically, when Jesus comes the second time, the dead are going to be with him. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Paul is basically saying Jesus isn't just going to take the living, the generation that's going to be here when he gets here. Those who are with him come with him, and they follow in the procession of witnesses that is coming with Jesus when he comes the second time, all right? All right, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Moving on to verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. This wording is very specific. Actually, this caught up together is all one word in the Greek. It's hapaterezio or something like that. And it basically means to grab and to run. The image that it invokes is like of a thief coming in, grabbing your stuff, and running away. That's the goal. And that's what Jesus means when he says, like a thief in the night, it will come. All right? With him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I want you guys to read that through three or four times. What is Paul's goal? Comfort each other with these words. He's not saying this is the truth. This is the end times. This is the event that will proceed. This is the event that will be in the middle. This is the event that will be at the end. He's saying, hey guys, it's all right. We're all going to be together with Jesus at the end anyway. The dead are coming. It's going to be all right. That is Paul's goal here. Now, again, you guys remember what I said about using one verse to explain the whole book. This is the foundational scripture of the rapture. An offhand reference where Paul is referencing an event that is not written down, is not in Revelation, and is not in the piece of Mark I had you guys read earlier. Okay? Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. What I am saying is that this scripture has been used to justify an event that we do not have any evidence of occurring one way or the other. Moreover, teaching on this event hasn't existed until 1855. That's extraordinarily new in the teaching of Christianity. Again, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. That just means that it's a really new event with a very small scriptural basis. There are a couple of other scriptures about it if you want to study it out. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, or 24, verses 36 through 44. We're not going to read it right now because we don't have time. And Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27 talk about it as well. All right? So there is a small, I'll give it to you after. But there's an extraordinarily small scriptural basis for it. But before anybody says, oh, yeah, rapture's not real, blah, 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 blah. You want to know something else that is foundational to Christianity that doesn't have a huge scriptural basis? The Trinity. And I don't know a theologian in his right mind who's going to argue that the Trinity is real. 
So what does this mean? This means study for yourself what you think the truth is in your secret place time reading your Bible and find what the Spirit is telling you about what the end times holds. What your place is in it, and moreover, what your role is in it. Because Jesus gave the instruction to watch. But what does that mean? I'm afraid that's an answer you're going to have to figure out for yourselves. Amen? All right, let's everybody stand together. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Sandy, South Jordan, West Jordan, or Harriman area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, head over to bridgechurchutah.com or email info at bridgechurchutah.com or you can simply text 801-391-6969. We're looking forward to seeing you soon.